0: reason, um, we shared last week how we're going to go through what's traditionally known as uh, the gifts of Christmas, the gifts of Christmas. And they are hope, uh, joy, peace, and love. And last week, uh, Pastor Dwight preached on the hope that we have in Christ and how Christmas reminds us of that hope. And today, we're going to talk about the gift of love as our next gift. So In this way, and now in this way, when we talk about love, it's a very safe topic to preach on. Um, There was a survey done a while back, asking people how they thought of God, and three fourths of them, they said that they rather think of God as being loving and kind, rather than being a god of justice, a god who demands obedience, uh, even a god of wrath. So the idea of love and God sits very well within us. In that sense, it's very safe. It's very easy to talk about love, especially during this Christmas season. But then again, perhaps the familiarity of the topic, it can tempt us to just quickly bypass this gift and and hurry up onto the other ones. It's It's the least surprising To hear this morning, to talk about love and how Christmas is about God's love for you. And I think everyone, we're on the same page with that. We like love. We want to talk about love, especially on Christmas. But here's where people are going to start to differ. It's when you ask them, what do you mean by love? What are you talking about? You ask two people the same question and you're going to get very different answers. Now imagine asking the very same people, how would you explain the love that we have in Christmas? And it's a very large topic. Where where do you start? What do do you say? Where do you go for your sources? Do you you watch Love Actually five times and, and try to glean something from that? Do you go around, try to catch these great slogans about love? Love is also a very sensitive topic because as much as love might be in the air during Christmas for many of us, it's the loneliest time because what it does, it reminds us how everyone else seems to be loved, how everyone else seems to be in this loving relationship with their family, with their loved ones, and it reminds us and it tells us how, how we feel the most unloved. So in response, we're going to see today how Scripture goes about this topic of love. And it centers on this idea that love is not a slogan, it's not a movie, nor is it a feeling. But we see that love is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And it is that gift that makes Christmas so loving. There's an old poem that goes, Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling. All thy faithful mercies crown Jesus, thou art all compassion. You are pure, unbounded love. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. So with that line, may we pray that we will have these trembling hearts to receive this familiar topic of love in Christmas as we study his word. Let's pray together. God, we do pray that we don't simply just run past this topic of love, but help us to dwell on Christ this morning. Help us to know even more deeply what it meant that you loved us by sending Christ to us. We pray for your Holy Spirit. May we have trembling hearts of reverence, of expectancy, and pure joy as we consider the love of Christmas this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, we read the whole section from verses 7 through 19, but we're going to zoom in on two verses because I think these two verses uh, really encapsulate the love of Christmas. They're verses 9 and 10, and so you can mark that in your Bibles. And to do that, we're going to talk about three headings this morning. Number one, the way that we tend to think about love, the way that we tend to understand how love works. Number two, how Christmas corrects that notion, how it corrects our incorrect understanding of love. And number three, how such a love is possible. How can love be in this way? In other words, number one, our incorrect view on love. Number two, Scripture's correct view on love. And number three, the basis for that love. So number one, how we tend to think about love. As I mentioned, the difficulty about talking about love, it's not necessarily the the complexity of it, even though it can get quite complex. But we can explain love pretty much to everyone. It's very simple to describe what love is. To a child, we can get at what love is by saying love is kind. Love is patient. Love does not envy or boast. It doesn't get arrogant or rude. And even at an early age, we have a notion of what love is. We can can identify it. We know it when we feel it. We know it for sure when we don't feel it. So in one sense, very simple. All of us have an understanding of what love is, but it's not the complexity of love that makes it difficult to talk about love. But what it is is the fact that you and I all of us, we already have an established understanding of what we think love is. We come to the text with our understanding, love must be this, love is this, from our own experiences and our own thoughts. So the difficulty of, uh, of talking about love is we have to undo everything we think about love first. Because all of us, we have a different understanding of how love operates. And one common way that we see in this world, and especially in us, is the fact that we love first in order to get love. That is a very common understanding that you and I have. Look at the way John writes. Look at verse 10. What he's doing here, he's talking about how Christians need to love one another. He encourages us with that. And then now he's giving us the reason for that. We are to love one another because why? Love is from God. And so throughout the passage, especially at verse 10, he starts to zoom in and define what love is. If you look at verse 10, do you see how it begins with this phrase, in this is love? And that's a very clear grammatical marker. And what it does, it prepares us for a definition. He's saying, a definition is coming your way. It's like having a conversation, and in the middle of the conversation, you're saying, hold on, hold on. Let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. I want to define the terms here. And that's what John is doing. Let's define what we're talking about when we say love. And so our Bibles read, in this is love. Other translations have, this is what love is. Or another translation, love consists in this. So so we're ready. Okay, what is love? And he continues. Not that we have loved God. So let's stop here. Before John describes what love is, he first describes what it is not. And it is not that we love God. It's not that we love Him first and then receive His love. And that's the first point today. And we've got to undo this notion of how we think love operates. Because you and I, we tend to think that love begins with us. We tend to think that it ro- originates with us. So in order for us to receive love, we must first love. We have to act first. We must first do something in order to get it. We have to pay for it. And underneath that notion is this inherent thinking that we have that that only when we paid enough for it, only when we paid such a price, only then are we worthy to receive that love. Do you see what he's getting at? There's a very well-known secular counselor whom... From what I can tell, she doesn't counsel off the Bible, but there's this one penetrating article that she writes, and it's clearly entitled, entitled, do you give love just to get love? Do you give love just to get love? And let me read just a few lines from that article. She writes, when you think about wanting to be in a relationship, why do you want it? When you give something to someone, why are you giving it? When I ask my clients why they want to be in a relationship, the most common answers have to do with the desire to get something from someone else. I want someone to love me. I want to get love and to get someone to make me happy i want to feel special to someone and i want someone to make me feel that i'm okay that i'm worthy of love if you read the rest of that article her her solution to this problem is way off but her diagnosis i think is very accurate you and i tend to believe that in order to be loved we need to love first first And that shows itself in the price that we are willing to pay. The cost can be anything from from our time, our energy, our resources, our finances, and we are willing to pay a very high price to get this love. And it's, it's a part of our human condition, and it's not just recent. Back in 1836, an author by the name of Hans Christian Andersen, should sound familiar, he wrote a short story about a young girl. And in the story, she's one of six beautiful daughters. And he writes, she, being the youngest, was the prettiest of them all. Her skin was as clear and delicate as a rose leaf, her eyes as blue as the deepest sea. But like all of her other sisters, she had no feet. And her body ended in a fish's tail. She was a mermaid. And now, in the story, the mermaid doesn't have a specific name, but just for our purposes, let's just call her Ariel for our purposes, all right? So as Ariel grew up, as the story goes, she would always be swimming to the surface of the water, looking at bypassing ships and the life of humans. And one night, she saw a ship that wasn't sailing, but it was calm on top of the sea. And as she got nearer, she heard music and festive singing. I'm reading from the story. There were a hundred colored lanterns lighted, and as she swam close to the cabin windows, and now and then as the waves lifted her up, she could look through the windowpane and see a number of well-dressed people within. And among them was a young prince, the most beautiful of all, with large black eyes, 16 years of age and the crew was celebrating this prince's birthday. The sailors were dancing on deck, but when the prince came out of the cabin, a hundred rockets rose in the air, making it as bright as day. And when she saw the fireworks, there are always fireworks in love stories. I, I decided that every story that has to do with love, there will be fireworks at some point. The little mermaid, Ariel, was so startled, she dove under the water, But then again, she stretched out her head, and as she saw the fireworks, it appeared as if all the stars in heaven were falling around her, and she had never seen such fireworks before, illuminating the faces of the people. Most importantly, illuminating the face of this handsome prince as the music resounded through the night. And you know how the story goes, right? The storm comes, the prince is drowning, she saves him. And afterwards, she's willing to pay whatever the cost for her to be human and for her to be with this prince. She gives up her voice, she exchanges her tail for a pair of legs. In the original story, Anderson describes that each time she takes a step, She feels as if a thousand knives are piercing her feet due to the sensitivity of her brand new legs. And this sea witch, whom we'll name Ursula, even says, it's very stupid of you, little girl, but you shall have your way, but it will bring you much sorrow. As if that wasn't enough, on top of that, she's told that she will never return to her underwater kingdom. She would leave her family and her sisters forever. And here's the kicker. If this prince does not love you in return, she will cease to exist and disappear into the sea waves. I'm sorry to break it to you, all Disney enthusiasts, but in the original story, she does not end up with the prince. He actually marries another woman. And on top of that, Ariel, she has to dance at their wedding so that she could have one last look at this unrequited love. And then afterwards, she's gone, she's gone. If we had Hans Christian Andersen here with us right now, we asked him, what's the point of this story? What are you trying to tell the world? And I don't think his answer would be just how great it would be to to live under the sea, right? That's not the point. What's the point? I think he would say something like, along the lines of verse 10. Say something like how like the little mermaid, you and I, we're willing to pay a very high price to be loved. And it's all because we think that love can only be received if we pay that price first, if we pay the cost, if we take the first step, ironically, if we initiate it. In other words, we think that love originates with us first then we receive love. And I think Anderson, he's asking this question, is this the kind of love that you want? We pay the price of changing ourselves to be a certain way because we think that that if I was more attractive, if I had more money, if I was more successful, that I think I'd be more lovable. And all in all, we think love to be a transaction. I pay for the goods, and you, in turn, you owe me this commodity called love. And when does this kind of thinking reveal itself? It reveals itself when we get angry at our spouses after after all that I've done for you, right? It reveals itself when we get angry with our kids after all the sacrifices I made for you. We get angry at the world, at other people for not giving us for what we paid for with our time, our energy, and resources, and the angrier we are shows how much we paid. But the scariest thing with this is that when we do these things for the sake of another person, just like the prince, there is no guarantee that you will be loved. And the sinful thing is that ultimately, it's us. We love first in order to get love. We're serving ourselves. Do you see that? We see ourselves as the final beneficiaries of this transaction, not the one we claim to love. It's about us. That's where the sin is. Listen to C.S. Lewis on this. He says that all these human loves... It makes a very high claim. It talks and dresses itself up as if it was divine, when it's really not. Human loves tell us, don't count the cost. Uh, Do whatever it takes. It demands total commitment, all for love's sake. And it sounds pure and noble. And these human loves, they become gods in themselves. One's love for his country, one's romantic love for his spouse one's love for his or her family and he says what's blasphemous about these loves is not when they're at their worst but when they're at their best because when they're at the best he says that they will corrupt us and transform us into mere animals paying whatever the cause doing whatever it takes all for love's sake but at the end of the day these human loves become gods, and then they become demons, and then they destroy us, and they destroy us like it destroyed this little mermaid. So then, what does Christmas have to say about love? To our second point, how Christmas corrects this false understanding of love. So let's continue with our definition. He writes in verse 10, And this is love. Not that we have loved God. That's the negative assertion. Now the positive. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love does not originate with us. It's not where we love first or we need to pay the cost to receive it, but it's when God first loves us. What kind of love is John talking about? Earlier, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Four Loves. And in it, he describes the different ways that we can talk about love. There's eros, which is the romantic love that you have when you face another person. There's phileo love, where you're standing side by side with your friend looking at the same thing together in one voice, one unity. There's storge love, which is the love of affection a love of familiarity like your family, like your dog. But then he said, there's one that's the greatest one of them all. And it's the love of agape. And he gets it from this. It's a love that sacrifices oneself for the good of the other. And he said, this kind of love is divine. And Christmas, what it does, it redefines how we view love, where it's not something we get after we pay such a price, but it is a love that is freely given by God, a love that is not paid for by us, but by the giver of that love. It's unconditional, it's sacrificial, it's divinely originated. And Christmas tells us every year that love, this highest, this greatest form of love has come down in the person of Jesus Christ for you. How do you know that there is such a divine love for you? You look at the manger. Such a love that that doesn't wait until you make the first move. God made the first move. We weren't looking for him. Perhaps we were looking for community. Perhaps we were looking for God to bail us out. We weren't looking for Him, but He was looking for you. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Verse 9, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Do you see, that's the reason, this love, the reason why the wise men and the shepherds gathered This love is the reason why the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the reason why Simeon and Anna in the temple, the first ones to see Jesus, they proclaim, for my eyes have now seen salvation. Jesus, love, manifest, and the incarnation meant that God, he made that first move that first step of love where he initiates it, he pays for it, he shows proof of it, and Christmas means that love came down for you. This completely corrects our notion of love. Let's take some time to meditate on what this means first. It means, as I said, it doesn't cost us, it costs him. For Jesus to be manifest, it means that Jesus, who's, who's fully God, and has been God in heaven for all eternity. He takes that first step, he assumes flesh, and for God, it calls him his his one and only son. If you look at verse 9, it reads that God sent his only son. In other words, his only begotten son. It means unique, one of a kind. And I love the way this sentence is phrased. The English has a slightly harder time, but the way verse 9 goes, it goes, it was his son. It was his only begotten son whom God sent. Do you see what it's doing? Where's the emphasis? It was his son. It was the only son he had. That's the one he sent. Do you see how it's emphasized here? The cost that it took God. And the cost that it took for Jesus himself to come, it cost him his glory. J.I. Packer says for Jesus to be manifest, he had to lay aside his glory, a a voluntary restraint of power and acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, misunderstanding, and finally, a death that involved such agony. It cost a lot. It also means that, that Jesus didn't love us in order to get something from us. It's not to demand anything from it. We know that because because there's nothing that we have that Jesus doesn't already have. Colossians tells us that it is through him, by him, and for him that all things in the universe were made. What does that mean? Jesus owns every single thing that exists. There's nothing you have that he doesn't already have. He already has the fullness of love in the Godhead between Father, Son, Spirit. He has all the glory he could ever want with the seraphims and the cherubim singing, holy, holy is the Lord. He has nothing that we want, yet he comes. Not because he wants something from you. It also means, Christmas means that God now identifies with you and all the pain and suffering that you experience in this lifetime. Jesus' incarnation means that God knows everything that you've gone through life. Even the most traumatic event of human life. You know what that is? It's birth. <laughs> in our desperate times, we, we look for God's love, don't we? We ask questions like, God, where are you? don't you love me? What's going on? We all ask that question when we don't get things our way, when things happen and and it messes up our plans, we question, God, do you love me? And a lot of the times he does not give the specifics of why they're happening. He doesn't. But it's not because he doesn't love you. And Christmas gives us evidence of that because it means that he now identifies with how you feel in such difficult times. That's how you know if you love someone, if he or she is willing to identify with you. Because identifying yourself with the other person means that you care enough about that person to, to not just listen, to not only just talk to them, but to actually experience what they're going to hold their hand that's love, to hold their hand and say, I don't know the answer, but let's do it together. One pastor once shared how he came to this funeral, and it was a funeral of a young boy who had tragically passed away. And This pastor, he was invited with the hopes of him somehow consoling this mother who was weeping uncontrollably throughout the whole funeral. And you know how the funeral goes. By the end of the time, each person goes up and says a few words to the family, hugs them, and takes their seat. And as the funeral ended, this pastor, he was frantically searching all throughout his mind for something to say to this mother who just lost her only son. And as he was searching, he saw a woman, slightly older Then the mother, she goes up, she hugs the mother, and he sees she whispers something into the mother's ear, and she sits down. And all of a sudden, this mother, she stops crying. And for one brief moment, it seems as if she has been comforted and consoled. This pastor, he comes up to this older woman after the service, and he asks, can I please ask, what did you say to this mother? In response, I told the mother this. I know how you feel. My son died last year from cancer. I'm so sorry for your loss. Charles Spurgeon said, a Jesus who never wept can never wipe away my tears. We have a Jesus who weeps, who has wept, who knows how you feel. Hebrews chapter 2 says he was made like us in every respect so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. One author writes, Jesus never asked from man what he has not first experienced himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money, to the worst of horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he actually played the man. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, and he thought it was worthwhile for you. When love came down on Christmas, it meant that God loved you enough to volunteer himself to go through every pain you felt, every trial you had to go through, from the minor annoyances at work to the most unbearable tragedy of your son dying. And it means that he loves you enough to identify with you, to hold your hand, to say, let's do this together. Every year, God gives us the blessing of Christmas, and I think he does, does so in such a way because by the time December comes around, after a full year, we've gone through our share of, of disappointments in love, haven't we? I think he sovereignly placed that because he's saying, this is the kind of love that you have in me. I know about all the failed loves this year, these past years and all your life. Now look at this kind of love. When Jesus was born, he was born in the middle of this time what theologians call the 400 years of silence. And it's the time between the last book of the Old Testament and Matthew. Where for 400 years, God does not reveal any new revelation. It's a time of silence, darkness, exile, expectancy it's a time when God's people were asking this question God do you still love us do you still love us in this difficult time this dark time and likewise we may be asking the same question after a year of darkness, of of waiting for love, after spending so much time, energy, and devotion investing in this person or that thing, all to be disappointed. And may Christmas remind you, yes, God does love you. Christmas says, yes, he does. And not only does God love you, but He loves you with a divine love unlike any other loves in this world. A love that doesn't depend on you, but originates from God Himself. A love that doesn't depend on you to act first, but He makes the first move. A love that where you don't have to pay the price for it, but He paid the price. costs us nothing, but it costs Him everything. Christmas corrects our notion of love. finally, how such a love is possible, our final heading. And so we're considering this question, why? Why would God in Christmas love us in such a way? We're asking the question, why does Christmas exist? How can it exist? And in our passage, the answer is very clear. Why? Because God is love. God, out of his nature, expresses love towards us. You See, we often assume that to be the case. Of course, God is love, right? And we brush it off. And we think it's just some lofty philosophical statement, but that's not what John is talking about. He's talking about a real, concrete, tangible love that you can see in the manger, you can see in flesh, And God is love. Why? Because that is who he is in the Godhead, the Trinity, in relationship where for all all eternity, God the Father pours out His love on the Son, and in return, the Son pours out His love to the Spirit and back and forth, and for all eternity, there has been what people call this divine dance of love. It is who He is. That is His nature, and it is out of that nature He loves us. This is so important to us. Why? Because for God to be love, it means that you and I benefit from it. It is out of his love he creates man. It is out of his love he redeems man. It is out of his love he pays the price. It is out of his love he takes the first step. It is out of his love he makes sure that we make our lives in him. And it means that because it's his nature to love, it does not depend on the attractiveness of the object. It does not depend on how worthy we are, but it solely depends on who God is. Do you see why this is so important? Theologians call the the statement God is love to be the most profound, the most important statement of the Bible because that means that He's going to love you not because there's anything lovable about you, but because that's his nature. It means that his love for you does not depend on you, but the only ground of God's love is his love. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Meaning as a matter of fact, not only were you unlovable, but you were sinners and you were his enemy, as Romans 5 says. And while we were still sinners, Christ still came and died for us. It wasn't because of anything lovable you've done, nor is it because anything lovable you will do. Why? Because the love of Christmas does not originate with us, but originates from God. God loves you because he loves you. That's the answer. If you have a significant other, there's a question that's going to inevitably come your way. And it's this question. Why do you like me? That person's going to ask you this question. And in that moment, your mind is going to frantically search for the right answer. And you're going to envision a hundred different scenarios of what could happen from you being slapped, from you being scoffed at, to you being called a straight-out liar. And do you know why that question is unfair? Do you know why it's a trap? Because whatever answer you give, it means that you value that particular trait more than that person. If you say, I love you because of your looks, here's the response. What about when I get old and gray and wrinkly? Are you not going to love me then? Fail. What about this? What about, I love you for your personality. And here's the response. You liar. I don't believe you. How do you like my personality now? <laughs> Fail. There's no answer. I did some digging. Here's one answer. There's an author. Her name is Elizabeth Barrett Browning, And she writes to her husband, Robert Browning. She writes this. If thou must love me, let it be for naught except for love's sake only. Do not say, I love her for her smile, her looks, her way of speaking gently. For these things, in themselves, beloved, may be changed or changed for thee. But love me for love's sake, that evermore thou mayst love on through love's. Eternity. That's what I said to my wife. <laughs> On Christmas, we see the proof of God loving you, not contingent upon anything about you, but He loves you for you. Do you see why this is important? The fact that God is love. Because without it, you and I would be in this constant fear and anxiety if we were lovable, if we were worthy of God's love. From the second you commit that sin, what happens? The first signs of doubt come into your mind. Does God really love you after what you have done? But the fact that God's love is grounded upon him gives you all the assurance that you need. No matter how deep your son, a sin may run. God loves us not because we're lovable, but that's his nature to love us. Listen to how one pastor puts it. Do you think God comes to you and says, oh, I love you? And do you think he means something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you, your, your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile. Everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be so boring without you. I love you. Do you think that's what God says to us? He goes, isn't it something like this? When he says he loves you, he says, morally speaking, you are of the worst kind. You have the most unattractive features, of the most abominable personality. Your sins have made you so disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not because you are attractive to love, but because it is my nature to love you. That's what it means when we say God is love. Do you see why this is the highest? Revelation for us. Because every time you feel unloved, every time you feel that you don't deserve to be loved, you look to that manger to see how God showed you that he loves you enough to break into this world because that's who he is. There's a lot of applications we can take away from this passage. But in light of Christmas, I just want to present one. It has to do whether or not you believe that when we talk about this love coming down, if you believe this love came down for you, because that's going to make a world of a difference. That final piece where it says he loved you, he sent his son for you, it's so important. And that's going to decide if this Christmas is just going to be a festive holiday that everyone celebrates, or this is going to be the highest revelation for you this year that's what it says in verse 9, that he sent his son so that you may live through him. He had you in mind. His goal was for you to be with him for all eternity. And that's going to make all the difference if you actually feel and experience this love, joy, hope, and peace this Christmas. Let me show you what I mean. On March 24th, 2012, a few years ago, the Pope, he visited Guanajuato, Mexico. And it was Pope Benedict's first trip to Latin America. And being a very Catholic country, you can imagine all the excitement that the Mexican people had. And in typical fashion, they threw a this grand parade for the Pope as he drove through the crowds. And during that parade, everyone was excited. Everyone was joining in on the celebration. Everyone was joyful. But out of all the people, there's one little guy who was the most excited, the most joyful. And you know who that little guy was? It's this little dog. Because what had happened was after the Pope went through the crowds, this stray dog happened to walk along the same path And you can look at his face, confused, kind of scared, wondering what the heck is going on. But then he runs down. Because at that moment, he realizes, this parade is for me. (laughs) And this picture captured the hearts of thousands and is revered as a very famous picture. DC, it makes a difference. Because everyone was joining in on the celebration, just like everyone joins in on the celebration. But where it makes a difference is if you believe this parade is for you, that Jesus came down for you. And only when you sincerely believe that he came for me, you're going to run down that parade this month with the utmost joy peace, love, and hope. I want to end with this, and this is our application in light of this. And it's the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says this, During this Christmas, my master wants room, room for him, Room for him. I, his herald, cry aloud. Room for the Savior. Here is my royal master. Do you have room for him? Here is the Son of God made flesh. Do you have room for him? Here is he who can forgive all sin. Have you room for him? Here is he who can take you out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay. Have you room for him this Christmas? Here is he. When he comes into your heart, he will never go out again. He will abide with you forever to make your heart a heaven of joy and bliss. Do you have room for him? Tis all I ask. Your emptiness, your nothingness, your want of feeling, your want of grace, your want of goodness, all these is simply room for him. Have you room for our Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, Spirit of God, may Renewal Church say, yes, we have room for Him. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after each message, we take time to personally engage with God in response to how He may be speaking to you through His Word this morning. And so first, as we pray, may we consider... How have you been going about love this year? Have you been loving in order to get love? Have you been making sacrifices, making, paying the cost all with the intent, this idea that you demand, you deserve to be loved in return? Have you been operating on a false notion of love this year? Join with me as we repent saying, God, forgive me for making it all about me and not about you. Let's pray.